Can I have your attention? And uh, we can have a serious discussion on reality. <laughs> One of the people here were, you know, this is a, a question that, a good question, because sometimes when, when I talk about the way things are using this this term, it, it can sound like a kind of passive uh, resignation, you know, because we can kind of pass, well, that's the way it is, you know, tough luck, just stiff upper lip and uh, bear with life. It's not, but that's, that's what I would call a kind of passive resignation from despair or it's a very negative response, reaction. But this, what I'm pointing to isn't a negative response, it's just a, a noting. Like right now, this, this is the way it is. I'm not saying it's good, bad, right, wrong, pleasant, painful, indifferent, or what, it's like this. And then, what, now when I reflect like this, then I feel this sense of embracing the moment. I'm not trying to do anything with it or or change it, or exaggerate it, or make it into anything more, but just recognize it. And then I kind of tune in to, into the stillness, uh, what I call sound of silence, in the stillness of the present, beyond the noise, beyond this, the sounds of the world, there's this stillness. And you begin to, to recognize it behind everything, so that it, it's always present here and now, and then, the, then the, the various conditions arise and cease, come and go in the stillness. And then through training and developing, then you, you're learning to trust and abide in the stillness, rather than just be caught up in the endless stimulation of the changing conditions. And uh, I noticed like, like living a monastic life where you spend a lot of time alone and you, you know, I talk about the first year when I was a Samanera in Nongkai in Thailand and spending a year alone by myself in a little kuti uh, and, uh, you know, it was just being, having nothing to do try to contemplate, having nothing to do, nobody to talk to, nowhere to go. I only had this little book, Word of the Buddha, you know, can read it in half an hour, <laughs> and, and me. And then somebody would deliver a tiffin carrier, you know, these layered carriers with food in once a day. And uh, and the mind goes absolutely crazy. And at first, you think, "Oh, this is wonderful, peace at last." But after a couple of days of that, <laughs> you know, you're conditioned to always be trying to fill up something, find something to do, anything. And so, so then, you know, so then that's why I say peace is is boring. People, you know, say we want peace. Peace, pace. <laughs> but when there is peace, it's it's very boring. Where war is exciting. 
<laughs> Sex is exciting. Violence is exciting. Sports are exciting. Uh, melodramas, you know, like soap operas and that. They, they just had about peaceful, happily married couple living happily ever after. <laughs> It'd be boring, wouldn't it? <laughs> Wonder what, you know, if the archers were just good-natured English people that only were happy and sit and did meditation practice every day <laughs> and obeyed all the laws, never complained. Nobody'd listen. <laughs> this is reflecting on, you know, peace as, a, as an ideal and then the reality of peace. Now in the, in the uh, training, like in, you learn <coughs> To like in my own my own practice, I I had this insight into peace, but then the conditioning my conditioning was not anything but peaceful, and so it reacted in all kinds of strange ways. Uh, so it um, I had hallucinations, uh, all kinds of uh, emotional mem memories of the past from way back the early childhood and. And uh, I started, you know, began to hallucinate sometimes and start imagining things. I get a little paranoia. And uh, uh, just this feeling of, you know, despair and all these, these very negative emotions were, were dominant the first couple of months. And then, uh, but through the kind of just uh, accepting them, they are the way they are, and then eventually it's like a, a cleansing process. Uh, and the, these, all these repressed feelings and fears that I'd accumulated for, I was 32 at the time, for 32 years, you know, suddenly they all had an opportunity to, to go out. So one time I had this hallucination, and I was sitting there in my cootie in the daytime, and I saw I saw my mother walk out of my brain. I really did. Now, can you imagine anything? My mother walking out of here, and my sister. <laughs> and everybody seemed to be walking out of my head, and I could see it. And, and then, of course, uh, this was hallucination, visual. And then I, I thought, this is madness. I've gone bonkers, I'm crazy. But then something in me knew that it wasn't that, because I didn't feel crazy. It was just like some, like things that accumulate in one's conscious, in one's mind over years that we tend to dismiss or not notice or resist. Through meditation, we began to no longer try to control the mind, you know, and, and just distract ourselves every time we feel a bit of discomfort or fear or anxiety about life. We patient, you know, patient endurance. And pretty soon these things, that things that one has been frightened of or resistant to or refusal to acknowledge, they'll, they'll pass through consciousness. And it is like a purification process. 
So that letting go and the way it is, <coughs> like uh, this this sense of this intuitive awareness, even though emotionally I, I thought I'm going crazy. You know, this is madness. This is I'm go you know I've lost my mind. There was the emotional reaction, but behind that was some that was the discerning ability to this. It is the way it is, and it and it. It's going away, it's not coming in. <laughs> so the the way it is, it's not just a, and, and like in monastic life, here it's, <coughs> being a, a monk or a nun, is a, the way it is, it's not a kind of resignation, uh, but you know, it, that's what, that's not helpful to just resign yourself to conventions and traditions in a passive way out of just feeling uh, uh, intimidated or pressured into doing it but it, it what what it, what it's for is to observe to observe the emotional reactions we have to limitation or conditions that we're experiencing changes that were that are happening in the present are like this the way it is then it, it will bring up our own sense of wanting it to be otherwise or doubting, despair that arise when things change the way that we don't, we may not like or want them to. But that's uh, part of the, the learning process that conditions change with having to be with the unloved or having to separate from the loved is suffering. <laughs> we chant that every day. <laughs> having to be with the unloved is dukkha. Having to be separated from the loved is dukkha. Not getting what you want is dukkha, is suffering. And, and so, it, and the, then on an intellectual level, it can sound like just pessimism, you know, it's all suffering. This is just all just, you know, life sucks and you're all going to die anyway. But <laughs> it's a kind of passive. It's not, it's not uh, embracing life, it's merely kind of giving up to it. And, and letting go is not just kind of giving up because there's nothing you can do as an act of just resignation, but it, it's a kind of embracing life, like you're really willing to to really feel this the way it is, uh, in whatever uh, you know way you're feeling it. It's like this, and so it's it's like a rising up. Something in me rises up, you know, when I when I reflect in this way, or if I if I get into my passive mode. Oh God, there's waiting problems all the time. The world's nothing but suffering. It's the way it is. It's life, and that does not. You know, I don't. I'm not rising up. I'm merely kind of resigning myself or excusing life. So, also, I found out. You know, like this emphasis on dukkha is. Um, that the Buddha made is the first noble truth of suffering. When you really contemplate this realm, you know, it is a suffering realm. 
because it's just, it, and it's not a it shouldn't be any other way, it's just the way it is. You know, we're all born and we're all going to die. We all know that. And, uh, and then we all have to experience the growing pains as children with childhood diseases and then we become self-conscious when we go to school and compete and get jealous and envious and, and, and all kinds. Of, these are basic human experiences that happen to everyone. And then growing up and then uh, getting old and being considered a success or a failure, being approved of or or resented by the society is we all have to experience various uh, permutations on these themes throughout a lifetime so then the, and this is all bearable when we have this perspective so it, it kind of uh, I like some of these Christian saints you know that that uh, feel a joy at being able to bear the cross or <laughs> kind of opportunity rather than a kind of self-flagellation and, and feeling uh, life is terrible and treating me badly. So in uh, and just to encourage this sense of embracing life, you know, like a, this word embracing when is it's like a, it's it's taking everything when you embrace somebody you're embracing the whole being not just the bits you like <laughs> so <laughs> and uh, apply that to life you know embracing life isn't approving or or pretending that it is something that's not but it it's a willingness to rise up to it and learn from it. See everything as opportunity to, to learn. And then to develop a more conscious sense of trusting yourself to observe. You know, because when you think about yourself from the ego level, you'll always get caught in doubt and I'm not ready, I'm not good enough, I don't have enough samadhi, don't have enough practice. I, they'll have so many emotional hang-ups and I'm not. And you go on like that, uh, I guarantee if you never see through that, it'll go on, the th carry you through the rest of your life. <laughs> it just doesn't shut up until you begin, <laughs> begin to observe it. And then, uh, then you're no longer feeding it or, or resisting it, but you, you're learning that all these conditions, the, the sense of yourself as this person, this personality, this physical form is is then seen from a wisdom level rather than from the personal, judgmental level that we tend to operate from, that we're kind of victims of, caught into that conditioned realm. Are there any questions? Yes? Thank you. 
see my whole family killed through a tsunami, the mind, the amount of wish, the pain, the pain in the body is what it is. So is it more about embracing that, that that's what it's like being a human being, rather than adding to it, oh, oh my God, my life is like this, and this is all happening to me, and feeding that energy? Because for me, the embracing and the acceptance of being what is, I find it difficult to think that one can be actually free from pain and suffering because that's part of the human condition. So is it more about the relationship one has with them, the pain and suffering, rather than to, to know is as it is, this is how much it hurts, or hurts someone's maybe just an illness or an accident or seeing one's family killed, that that is a natural human response. And I can't see how one can be free from pain and suffering because it's part of human condition. So there's this more semantic thing about not feeling it with taking it so personally, feeling it with energy and feeling how it's only me that's going through this, that, oh, this is what it's like to be a human being. Right, you're right. That's very important. Like the. Uh, um, the difference, you know, like, like that's why I, I go through this, the, this realm, this sense realm is like this, you know, so it's a sense realm and, it, and sensitivity means pleasure and pain, you know, through everything, through the body, through the mind, through the senses. And that's just natural phenomena, you know, that's not, it, it's, uh, you know, this realm we live in is a sense, a sense realm and sensitivity and these are sense forms so they feel all the time you know you feel hot or cold or hungry or thirsty or whatever and that's just part of the karma the karma being human and living on planet earth it's like this but then the suffering of the first noble truth isn't about that it's about uh ignorance wanting it to be otherwise and um taking suffering uh, or pain or stress or unhappiness, whatever degree it might, you might be experiencing it, to, to use it as, as it's the, uh, you know, it's this sense of it's happening to me, uh, why should it happen to me? <laughs> like, that's the suffering we create, the suffering that we put onto life. Uh, the other is just part of the karma of being human individual on this in this realm, and that that we can bear, and uh, even like loss of loved ones, like losing your your family or something in some disaster, and or just your your old mother at ninety nine dying is, you know, is you still feel grief you know, no matter how mindful you are, but you're not making a problem about it. You know, it's, you're not creating it into more than what it is. But when, when someone you love dies, it's like this. And so you're aware, you're embracing the feeling, and you're not rather than just trying to suppress it, or deny it, or get involved endlessly in and you're not wanting it, or why? Why does this have to happen to me? Kind of reactions. 
And it's like physical pain. I have, I've had uh, this past week, I had a surgery on my back. And so, <laughs> so I had um, this big cyst that uh, was, uh, you know, all through my trip through North America, I had to deal with this. It kept getting bigger and bigger and uh, it wasn't painful really unless you kind of suddenly lean too hard on back on a hard chair. <laughs> and then I had, a, had it uh, cut open and sutured. And it, well, you know, it's not been painful, but the past few days it's been very itchy. <laughs> and itchy is a sensation it's also a good sensation because it's a healing sign, you know. But also, seeing one's uh, reaction to this that sensation. <laughs> I can't blame the sensation on anybody, or uh, it's just the way it is. And the more I kind of relax with it and just let it be, then I don't suffer from it. But my my reaction to itching usually is to scratch it, you see, so try and get rid of it. But sometimes you can use these, and this isn't a very, you know, nothing great, no, no great traumatic experience, but it's one of the irritations of life, isn't it? Itching and things. Or like uh, in this uh, weather, you know, you get flies come into my cootie, and they, uh, and I'm busy doing something, and then they, keep flying around my head and and I feel this irritation wanting to get rid of them. Are you aware of that? That's suffering. The actual reality of the of what's happening is bearable, you know. But the the what I add to it is I don't want those flies in my cootie. <laughs> I want to get rid of them. And so you begin to discern the difference between wanting and not wanting something and the way it is. Then, then of course, we can be very practical. Like if we have a, like monks, we can't kill any creatures. So if we have a way of escorting the flies out of the goody, we're allowed to do that. <laughs> and sometimes I do take time to scratch my sutures just for the pure pleasure. <laughs> it's not like being tough on yourself, but also, you know, learning just in little way sometimes before they get too big. This is what I recommend, you know. Don't wait till the great tragedies and catastrophes of life get at you. But you know, so much of our life is neither one thing or the other. It's just it's like irritating or disappointing or annoying or whatever, and these are all opportunities to develop mindfulness before it gets to, you know, something really strong, something powerful happens. Because then it was just these little things that, you know, one develops increasing sense of confidence in mindfulness and learning, you know, from just the, the human condition that you're experiencing. Ha, 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 ha,
<laughs> oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> I have to get rid of my gun, man. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, uh, you know, like we, this is where we, we begin to have more confidence in being aware when, when we find ourselves getting wound up by something or caught into to a reaction. And um, not, not to, but it's not judgmental, it's not saying I shouldn't or that, because then it gets into, you know, judging and ideas of, and guilt and maybe blame somebody else. But it's, it's like willing to learn where where you feel most threatened, what happens when when you feel you know being threatened by something or by somebody's comment or insult or whatever it might be so i you know it's because uh, life is about praise and blame and success and failure, so this uh observing. Is what we can do, and and I found it, you know, then it really helps you to to get perspective on, and and develop more confidence in the in your awareness of situation, not be so so sensitive and threatened by life, because some people, you know, they're so afraid you're going to upset them, and <laughs> and uh, you know the. Some people are so sensitive that you you look cross-eyed and they they get terribly upset. <laughs> and there's a time for political correctness where you're supposed to say everything, never say anything that offends anyone. It's <laughs> 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 kind of desperate attempt to not offend anybody <laughs> and not be able to say anything very genuine. But um, so you know, when like like in uh, Thailand, for example, uh, they would when I when I came to live here in England, you know, I gained a lot of weight. I was used to be very thin, skinny in Thailand, and then gaining a lot of weight here, I'd go back to Thailand, and they say, "My God, you're fat." <laughs> and to them, that was just didn't mean anything. You know, there wasn't an insult. They just commented on the realities of it, <laughs> just stating a fact. But, but emotionally, I felt very upset by that. I didn't want people to at least to say that. <laughs> Don't mention it. <laughs> So it was just using something like that was you know feeling because I knew that they weren't you know I trust Thai people enough they weren't insulting me you know they weren't being malicious or mean but just stating a fact which I didn't like to hear because I you know didn't like to think of myself as fat. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's 
like the teachings, uh, like uh, in the uh, suttas, especially is what I've used uh, in the Tripitaka. Uh, their their teachings always uh, I've found very skillful to to use for reflect because they give you they 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 give you clear kind of guidance on what to do and uh, how to do it and ways of looking at something or they have lists of things sometimes Theravada Buddha comes across and it's pretty just like an inventory of human condition you know ten of this seven of that and and it can look pretty uh, dreary if you want it looking more kind of kind of mystical terminologies and inspiring teachings but they do have their point, you know, they, it's, a, it's more practical. And I found, you know, just these, these uh, basic teachings, Four Noble Truths, Four Foundations of Mindfulness, uh, Dependent Origination, these, these are kind of the essential teachings that you find in the scriptures, uh, is what I've used for observing, you know, check, check them out, just applying it so that, it, you know, I see it in myself rather than just theorize about it from a, from a commentary or, or a book. And, and the thing, you know, like in the first sermon of the Buddha, the uh, Dhammajaka Pavatana Sutta, the, um, you know, it's arranged, you know, like when the Buddha gave his first sermon, uh, you know, he gives it in this, in this reflective style. So the first, there's, there's three aspects to each noble truth. So, First noble truth, there's three aspects, three aspects of the second, three to the third, three to the fourth. So there's 12 insights. And the, then these aspects, they're called aspects, is a paradigm for uh, reflective awareness. So there's a statement, there is suffering, suffering should be understood, suffering has been understood. So it's a way of, of, of looking like we can all say life is suffering just as uh, we all agree that life is suffering and that you know but we haven't really understood it we just agree that life is suffering <laughs> and then and then somebody might disagree but when we're we're not trying to convert people to believe that life is suffering but taking that taking just this very ordinary human experience of dukkha and 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 investigating it as you experience it, you know the suffering you feel in the present, and by changing your direction from trying to get rid of it or react to it or blame it on somebody, you actually understanding it, and then you have the insight it has been understood. I, I see it now. This first truth, and then all the. Uh, all four noble truths have that pattern to use. So, and it, it gives you, you know, to uh, the first one is to understand. The second one is to let go of the causes. The third one is to realize the end, the when suffering ceases. And the fourth is a way of living to not create suffering. No longer create suffering out of ignorance. And and this is uh, like this. But even in the scripture, you know, in the Tripitaka, the uh, Buddha in his lifetime, after he was enlightened, 
he had to get old and he still suffered from old age sickness death just like any any other creature he still had you know you read the stories about the life of the buddha after enlightenment and it was you know he was praised and blamed and uh, plotted against tried to kill him trying to uh, spread scandals about him he had difficult uh, disciples that did terrible things <laughs> he didn't you know he had Anything that happened to me in this life is, falls into, into being almost mild or nothing compared to what you read the Buddha had to put up with <laughs> in the scriptures. But this is a good sign, you see, of, for us to contemplate. You know, he didn't, he didn't really get out of the realm of suffering as a creature but he did through through uh, discernment through wisdom and then he still had to bear with the with the aging of a body and its pains and its problems and the society he lived in but uh, he didn't create suffering around it so you never hear the buddha he never uh, you know blaming anybody or or uh, complaining <laughs> just sometimes you know the interesting story about these monks making a big problem around the Vinaya and, and he gets fed up and leaves <laughs> and goes up, retires. <laughs> I'm not claiming to be a Buddha though. <laughs> Paramatasatcha is, of course, uh, defined as ultimate reality. Uh, ultimate truth. And then, so this is, this is where, like, mindfulness, mindfulness is, uh, is the gate to that. You know, it's through mindfulness that we actually recognize ultimate reality. And then, uh, it's recognized, and then the, the samadhi that comes from that recognition or the concentration is, is a balanced kind of, it's not focused on, you know, it's not a samadhi that absorbs into something to exclude, but it's more like a balance of factors. Like in the Eightfold Path, you have the, the sama, vayamo, sama, sati, sama, samadhi, where the, the uh, you know, the, uh, energetic concentration mindfulness is uh, is is balanced it's complete it's stable rather than uh, dependent on conditions to support it but you see baramata like uh, there's samuti satcha baramata satcha and uh Lungpa Cha used to talk a lot about that using the samut samuti satcha entirely just say say samut and it's uh, conventional reality. So this is, the, we have to live in the world of conventional reality, you know, it, it, with his physical body is a convention. And the 
society we live in is based on conventions, you know, agreements, moral agreements, legal systems, uh, uh, cultural conditions and and ideas that come out of culture and religion. And so even uh, like the Vinaya is uh, Samuti Satcha. It's just a structure for use, but you're mainly to, to develop mindfulness around. It's not an end in itself. And then uh, Paramatta Satcha is where you, you know, the, the result of of letting go of the conventions, but it does not mean like destroying anything or getting rid of, but no longer this blind attachment. Like I could see how in religion, uh, any religion, the problems that we have in religious, religious is attachment to the samut, to the structure, to the conventional form. In which we, you know, we 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 attached to it, but we don't see the attachment. And then, uh, so then we form strong opinions about if something doesn't fit into our way, our convention, it's wrong. You know, so if you, you know, if you don't like the Christian conventions, that are different than the Buddhist ones. So if one is attached to the Buddhist conventions uh, out of ignorance, then you can only see Christianity is wrong. It's not Buddhist, so it's wrong. There's logic there. And the same Christians do that. They're very good at that. <laughs> you know, condemning uh, all other religions. But, but uh, the convention itself is is a strictly a uh, uh, samuti uh, satcha or conventional reality to not to be re re rejected but to be recognized its limitation and then if it's a religion you say what is a religion is buddhism a religion you know people ask this question because you don't have belief in god as a, as, a, as its basis and uh, but you know religion in terms of the word itself is from a Latin word religio which means uh, it's the bond that you make to the ultimate that, that conventional form that points to the ultimate you know so so like in my case becoming a Buddhist monk was like a uh, forming a bond taking on the 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 rules the life of the Buddhist monk is a, is a conventional form, but it's not an end in itself. It's merely for expedient means pointing at paramatta satcha. You know, to keep reminding you, to, to encourage and and keep pointing at ultimate reality rather than at uh, conventional reality. So this is, you know, trying to to put into into perspective the use of convention because uh, you know it, it's it can be dismissed or or rejected like you know people don't like the conventional forms of religion sometimes or think they're outdated or whatever so and then 
they have reason to believe it because a lot of people are attached to their conventional forms, which they can't see beyond. You know, it's like the finger pointing at the moon, you know, pointing at the moon, not you know, and you only look at the finger, you'll never see the moon. So this is, you know, just see, like I, I think if, it, if it's a proper, if it's a real religion, meaning it's, it's a conventional bond you make to use these conventions for looking in, the, in that direction of Paramatta Satcha and recognizing it, realizing it. And then, then the conventions can vary. It doesn't mean they all have to have the same. You all have to use the same convention. <laughs> Because <laughs> each one of us is, has to learn from the way we are. You can't learn from the way I am. <laughs> and so I heard a Tibetan monastery, there's a sign saying 88,000 monks, 8,000 paths. <laughs> and here there are 22 bhikkhus, 22 paths. <laughs> Each one of us has to learn from our own, you know, the way what one is. But we all agree, and we've all using this convention. So we're into we we support each other through the convention, and then they. So we're not, you know, what that does is is bond us as a as a sangha. So we're not just my opinion, your opinion, of what I think, what you think. It's that we we kind of surrender using this convention, and then uh, in a practical way, it's based on morality and and good manners and you know good qualities. So then, uh, so then uh, we can learn to live with each other in our different kind of karmic uh, extremities. So. Uh, Otherwise, we couldn't live. You know, I don't think 22 men could live together for very long <laughs> if we didn't agree to this one convention. Yes? Have you suggested that?
Do you have any wounds to show us? If they're not open to um, other suggestions, there's nothing much you can do, but, uh, you know, it's because uh, this is a problem we all have of, you know, we, we get upset at the workplace and bring it home and rant. I mean, and... Uh, so this is where mindfulness helps to begin to you know, as we, like meditation, helps us to stop just because it becomes habitual, you know, we can't stop it really. Uh, we get in so so addicted to the pattern we've developed that we, you know, mindfulness meditation helps us to stop the just the momentum of these habits. And uh, like talking about pushing buttons and things like this, you know, looking at um, just encouraging people to just uh, stop for a moment, you know, and listen, listen to themselves. Listen, I found, where, you know, in my own experience where I, if, when I get into this kind of uh, ranting, internal ranting, I, I stop and listen to it. And, and, and just... Uh, and and just begin to let it just rant inside me rather than than uh, <laughs> subjecting somebody else to it. <laughs> and that way I begin to get a perspective on it, you know, uh, rather than just using it. Because I found just like this uh, confrontational style where whatever you think you you use. You let you say, and you just let uh, all your emotions out on whoever is around. It makes life incredibly painful for anyone around you, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know it's not very nice to live with somebody who who's carrying all this anger and dumping it out on you, even though it's not directed at you. You you know it becomes habitual, so. It's where, you know, many of us have, you know, one reason for practicing meditation was to get outside this habit rather than than just... Because uh, even like <clears throat> cathartic telling off, you know, it, or saying what you think, it's still, it's still, you're making a karmic connection to it all the time. You know, you just, it make, might make you feel better for a while, kind of get it out of your system, but you haven't really resolved the problem. I'd say I wouldn't support it. <laughs> I've I've tried doing that with people. <laughs> I 
found it didn't really, you know, it made me miserable too. <laughs> and so, you know, you're, 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 you're making people around you miserable. And you might love the person doing it, but what they really need is uh, shut up. <laughs> One of these friends kind of, what do you call it, tough love kind of friend. <laughs> yeah, it's the... Good question. <laughs> but also, it's not just one way or the other. You know, sometimes people need to express anger and somebody to listen to it. But, you know, so that can be, like cathartic methods can be beneficial in the beginning, but when they become habitual, that's where it, it goes, you know, it becomes a habit again. I have one interesting experience years ago. This was this was many many years ago in Switzerland. Uh, I used to give a retreat before we had a vihara in Switzerland. I used to give a retreat there in Bern, and there was a woman there that was uh, like a middle-aged nurse. She she'd go on my retreats, and. Uh, she she was you know really nice person someone that had always seemed to be very positive about life and and uh, I quite enjoyed talking to her but but I anyway after I didn't see her for a year and the next retreat I gave in Switzerland she uh, <coughs> she told me that she felt that she was uh, holding repressing anger. Somebody told her that she was repressing her anger. So she did this anger therapy where she would go and hit pillows and 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 shout, you know, I hate you or whatever, but at aiming at always at a pillow. And so then I asked her how how did that affect her meditation? And she said, <laughs> she said Whenever I see a pillow I want to hit it. <laughs> became habituated, <laughs> addicted to hitting pillows. <laughs> so next week I'll be, I'm giving a retreat in Ireland and invite the Venerable Ajahn Amaral to give a talk next Sunday. I'll end here. <laughs>